This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast number 220, Floods. I am Hal Hammonds, Citizen of Heaven, your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for listening, rating, and subscribing. Nothing shows the power of God like a flood. Water, the most common and necessary object in the world, becomes an irresistible force, destroying everything in its path. This week we will discuss the impact Noah's flood had on the songs Israel sang for centuries afterward, the most famous weather event in Texas history, and the lesson in humility it taught, the hazards of associating blue skies with an absence of danger, and whether you should pitch in to save the town or just let everyone drown and cry all the way to the bank. We'll start with what I've been preaching. If you were expecting to hear about Noah in this segment, be patient. We'll get there in a second. But I'm going to assume you know that story already. I wanted to look at how the flood story shaped the way the people of God tell other stories, especially in the Psalms. Let's start with Psalm 124. The first five verses read as follows. If the Lord had not been on our side, let Israel say, if the Lord had not been on our side when people attacked us then they would have swallowed us alive in their burning anger against us. Then the water would have engulfed us. The torrent would have swept over us. The raging water would have swept over us. Moving water can do an incredible amount of damage. In fact, I was thinking about another Bible story, this one from Exodus. Do you remember the wrath of God as shown against Egypt for its treatment of the nation of Israel? God sent plague after plague upon them, culminating at the Red Sea crossing. Israel walked across as on dry land. Egypt attempted to do the same, except without the sheltering hand of the Almighty offering protection, and they were all destroyed. You may read that story and shake your head at the folly of Pharaoh. How could they have ever hoped to survive such an onslaught? But your confidence in the power of God may wane when you are the one in harm's way. In such moments, you need to find hope in God, just as Moses and the Israelites did. And as the psalm goes on to state, our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. We see a similar expression in Psalm 32, 6. Therefore, let everyone who is faithful pray to you immediately. When great floodwaters come, they will not reach him. Maybe it's even worse where you are right now. Not only does God seem unavailable in your trial, he even seems to be the cause of it. I think that's the point in Psalm 42. God seems distant, and so the psalmist thirsts for him. And the dejection he feels when God seems absent is only cause to seek him even more. I think that's the meaning of verse 7. In the Christian Standard Bible, it reads, Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your billows have swept over me. You say to me, are you saying God is the one who sent the flood? Why would he do that? And I don't have a concrete answer for that. Maybe it's just so you can watch him pull you out of it. The deep waters that threaten to drown you should call for an even deeper commitment to God. It's like the father of the afflicted boy said to Jesus in Mark 9, 24, I believe, help my unbelief. God hears prayers like that, and he will answer. It's like we see in Psalm 69. Verse 2 records the psalmist coming into deep water. A flood is sweeping over him. But it goes on to write in verse 15, asking God, don't let the floodwaters sweep over me or the deep swallow me up. God is not the problem. God is the solution. Psalm 29.10, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned, king forever. 
Destruction wreaks havoc over the world at large and sometimes over your own life as well. But in the end, it all testifies to the power and sovereignty of the one who made and sustains it all. I said we'd get back to Noah. There's a reason the flood is referenced so often in the Bible. As we've already seen, flood metaphors inundate the Psalms, pardon the expression. The record of the flood itself in Genesis requires about twice as much space in the text as the creation. Job and Isaiah make specific reference to the event, as does Jesus himself on a couple of occasions, Luke 17 and Matthew 24. The Apostle Peter mentions it in both of his letters. In 1 Peter 3, the flood is used as a way of describing how God rescues godly people from ungodly situations. The water of baptism is likened to the flood, and being carried through the flood safely represents our delivery from sin and our introduction into a brand new, sinless world. In 2 Peter 3, the flood comes up again, this time as a cautionary tale. Some argued then, as some argue now, that the world will continue indefinitely. It always has, after all. But those who say such things are willfully ignorant of the flood story. God has destroyed the world once, and he promises he will destroy it again, and for the same reason. And when we live wanton lives indifferent to the judgment of God, we doom ourselves to the same fate as all the others who thought they could survive God's floodwaters without his protection. The flood is coming. You may feel like you're in the middle of it already. Don't despair. Buy heavenly insurance instead. This is what I've been reading. Isaac's Storm by Eric Larson is the story of the Great Storm, back before we were naming them. The storm struck the city of Galveston, Texas on September 8, 1900. It is still considered the greatest natural disaster in American history. Hey, it's Texas, right? Everything's bigger in Texas. The Isaac to whom the book title refers is Isaac Monroe Klein, the man who had primary responsibility for weather prediction for the National Weather Service in Galveston in 1900. Isaac Klein was a firm believer, as were many climate scientists of his day, in the law of storms. Predicting weather, he believed, was simply a matter of getting enough reliable data. After all, as Larson points out in the introduction to the book, this was an era in which Teddy Roosevelt's Great White Fleet would project American naval power as far away as China. There was talk of renewing efforts to dig a canal through Panama, connecting the two great oceans. There was even talk of combating hailstorms with cannon blasts and creating forest fires to prompt rain showers. With brilliant ideas like these practically falling out of the trees every day, surely it was possible to predict the appearance, severity, and landing spots, if any, of hurricanes. The great storm seems almost to have been designed by God to cure us of our hubris. This storm behaved like no storm anyone had ever seen. It drifted south of Puerto Rico on the 1st of September, cut a swath through Haiti, the Dominican Republic, and Cuba, then turned north at the Florida Keys, where everyone assumed it would continue its clockwise swirl and make landfall near Tampa. Instead, it headed west, building up considerable momentum across the unusually warm waters of the Gulf of Mexico, making landfall on Galveston Island with a level of intensity that defied all expectations and taking the lives of an estimated 8,000 Galvestonians. Then, after laying waste to the island, the storm continued inland more than 100 miles before finally making its clockwise turn and creating major storms, floods, and tornadoes through Oklahoma, up through Iowa, across the Great Lakes, 
and eventually emptying out into the Atlantic on the coast of Nova Scotia, Canada. The only good news, said the experts at the time, was that such a storm could not possibly strike Galveston again, a once-in-a-thousand-years event, they said. And then another storm came in 1915. Not nearly the size of the Great Storm, obviously, but still enough to upheave a ship and carry it all the way downtown. So much, I suppose, for the law of storms. Our ability to collect and process information has increased exponentially in the last century. Meteorologists, despite the reputation of the local weatherman, are remarkably accurate over short periods of time. Some even go so far as to predict general trends for an entire year or several years. For instance, the periodic weather disturbance known as El Nino was supposed to bring more moderate temperatures to the Gulf Coast in 2023, reducing the likelihood of a strong hurricane. But this very week, we had the hottest temperatures on record for this time of year in Central Texas. And the Hammonds family has a vacation planned at Walt Disney World smack dab in the middle of hurricane season. So, there's that. David writes in Psalm 16:5, Lord, you are my portion and my cup of blessing. You hold my future. I think the key to appreciating the second half of that verse is to focus on the first half. I can rest easy in happy ignorance of the path my life will take because God will be on that path with me, showering me with the blessings I need all along the way. Contentment is not found in finding and exercising control over the future. We've tried that ever since the Garden of Eden. We've always failed, and we will continue to fail. Contentment is found in surrendering the future to God and trusting Him to provide. That does not guarantee that storms will pass you by. But it does guarantee that no storm of life can wash away the things you value the most. That is, if the thing you value the most is your faith. Through faith, you will be able to say with Job on days when your day looks like his. The Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This is what I've been hearing. To this day, I don't know where Shoal Creek is. And I certainly didn't know where it was back in the 70s and 80s when I was growing up and watching the weather reports with my family. All I knew was, if there was a heavy rain in the forecast for anywhere in the central Texas area, a flash flood warning was likely to go out for homes near Shoal Creek. It could be as dry as a bone on our driveway, and still we got flash flood warnings. I learned pretty quickly to ignore them. I may have asked if the flood was going to keep me from going to school the next day. If I did, Mom would have said no. I would have been disappointed, and that would have been the end of it. In fact, I didn't know what a flash flood was. I suppose I figured it was the kind of flood that was accompanied by flashes of lightning, something like that. In any case, it couldn't have been that big of a deal, right? I'd watched water levels rise before. You think your stuff's going to get wet, you move upstairs or uphill. No big deal. Well, I've come to realize how wrong I was on the subject. Flash floods are extremely dangerous. A flash flood occurs when a large amount of rainfall strikes in a short period of time and forces an unusual amount of water into riverbeds and creek beds, including the famous Shoal Creek. It's not a matter of rising water levels, at least it's not just that. Flash floods are characterized by fast-moving currents of water that sweep away virtually everything in their path. Cars, small buildings, and certainly people. They're called flash floods because of how quickly the danger can set in. A calm day, even a relatively sunny day, can become hazardous in moments. The amount of rain in the danger zone is not the important thing. 
The destruction comes from the amount of rain upstream that has nowhere to go but downstream. That's why the warning system was implemented. And I'm quite sure the people who live near Shoal Creek and other zones given to flash floods pay a lot more attention to the warnings than I did. They have to. Some of them likely have learned from bitter experience how dangerous apathy and indifference can be. It's easy to assume that calm conditions will remain calm. Voices of doom and gloom can be easily dismissed. What you need in moments of potential disaster is what we sometimes call the voice of authority. We need someone with unassailable credibility to step in and say, ignore what your lying eyes are telling you. Listen to me. Your life is in danger. Take precautions immediately. Jesus tells a series of stories in Matthew 24 and 25 designed to get us to make preparation for important future events, whether they are mere possibilities, whether they have specific warning signs, or whether they may arrive suddenly with no warning at all. One of the most familiar ones is in Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13, a story about 10 virgins awaiting the arrival of the bridegroom and the beginning of the wedding feast. The ones who took extra precautions were ready and were granted entrance when the time came. Those who paid attention only to short-term needs were caught unawares and left out. Whether the application is for the Jews of the day who saw the destruction of Jerusalem during their lifetimes, or for all of us as we await Jesus' return, or for the challenges we all face from time to time that seem to come out of nowhere, the application is the same. Get ready now. Acknowledge the potential danger. Have a plan. Be alert to the warning signs and spread the news as you have opportunity. Those who were at ease in Zion during Amos' tenure as prophet refused to listen to his warnings, and they were all swept away in God's wrath. Don't make the mistake they made. Listen to the warnings. Give yourself a chance to live. This is what I've been playing. If you've ever wanted to raise sheep, but were concerned that low elevation would endanger your grazing acreage, you might find lowlands an interesting exercise. Lowlands is a board game in which you take on a dual role, raising sheep and managing the land to make it more sheep-friendly. Over several rounds of play, an indeterminate amount of rainfall will come to your settlement. You and the other shepherds at your gaming table combine your efforts to build a dike to keep the floodwaters out. If you build the dike quickly enough and high enough, the land is protected and the sheep don't have to take swimming lessons. But all the effort you put into building the dike is effort that isn't going into building up your own sheep ranch. Pitching in for the common good is all fine and dandy, but this is not a cooperative game at the end of the day. You're playing to win. And if letting the town get washed away will raise the price of mutton and improve your own bottom line, well, maybe you don't really like your neighbors all that much anyway. Balancing the good of the many and your own personal welfare is not always easy. We hear sometimes about shenanigans in the stock market. Some rich guy buys up a stock, gets the price to increase dramatically, and then sells it all for a quick profit. Ordinary people lose their jobs, other investors lose their shirts, and the market itself becomes a little less stable. But hey, that's the way the cookie crumbles, right? As long as I'm better off, who cares about the common good? The concept hit a bit closer to home for our family when we were living in hurricane zones. People would rush to stock up on bottled water, gasoline, canned goods, whatever they thought might come in handy if the power went out for a few days. Whether they actually had need of, say, four 12-packs of toilet paper was not the point. Get it while the getting's good. 
And if things get nasty and your neighbor wants to pay you 10 times what you paid for the goods, well, he should have cut in line at the grocery store like you did, right? Disasters bring out the best and the worst in us. We've all seen it happen. Many of us have seen it in our own lives. If you want to be the hero in such circumstances and not the villain, you need to work on your value system now. Be the kind of person who puts others first at all times, not just when lives are on the line. Paul tells us in Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And note here he doesn't say, be generous when lives are on the line, or selfish ambition is okay as long as no one gets hurt too badly. These are absolutes. They have nothing to do with circumstances. This is about what kind of person you choose to be. And a selfish person in ordinary circumstances will tend to be selfish in times of disaster. You might turn out to be the exception to the rule, sure, but don't count on it. Here's a better plan. Examine your life for ways in which you are working to bless others. The local church is not the only place where an attitude of service crops up, but it's a great place to start the examination process. Are you looking for what serves your own personal interests most? Or are you aware of how changes that might benefit you could be disadvantageous to others? It could be something as simple as the setting on the thermostat, or as big as choosing to serve as a deacon or elder. If we are members of the body, we should have enough faith to believe serving the interests of others is, in the long run, the best way to serve our own interests. I love how specific Nehemiah's record-keeping was. Some of the people helped build the wall of Jerusalem. Some, it seems, had other things to do. The point for the Jews of old is the same as the point for Christians today. You have a stake in the bigger objective. Therefore, you have a role in pursuing it. And shame on you for reaping the blessings of fellowship without doing your part. So roll up your sleeves and start pitching in. The larger community needs you. Who knows? The farm you wind up saving might be your own. Thank you for listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Please rate, review, and share so others can access this content. I encourage you also to join the Heaven Citizens Facebook group. There you will find links to related materials, conversation starters, poll questions, and the occasional special announcement. Also, check out the Hal Hammonds channel on YouTube for even more content. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, Citizen of Heaven, signing off.